Welcome back to the Alts Podcast. I'm your host, Horatio Ruiz. We bring you industry leaders and creators to give their insights on the rapidly changing and exciting world of alternative assets. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the host and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. The intro song, Fishing for Pets, is written and composed by Alan Goldscher from his latest release, Live at the Lakeview Lounge. Hey guys, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Today I got to talk to Christian Kielhoffner, the founder and CEO of Tavera, which uses proprietary technology to verify digital content. Christian recently launched Fight NFT Fraud on fnftf.io giving users the opportunity to quickly determine if an NFT is authentic or not. We talk about so much in here from Christian's personal journey as an entrepreneur to doing detective work to solve a bug on his servers and his thoughts on the dangers of unchecked fraud in the Web3 space. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Christian. Yeah, Christian, so like, you know, I was just looking at the website, Tovera, and and I guess like my, my big question was, you know, uh, how, how big is Tavera? You know, kind of like, what is the scope that you're, you're covering? Because I really like what you're doing in terms of like fighting these fraudulent NFTs. But I know you talked about also like uh, like physical, you know, digital collectibles, digital items. And, and, and kind of what, like, how much does that span? Like, what are we talking about uh, beyond NFTs? Sure. So, you know, we're really long-term believers in the, the Web3 ecosystem and, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the promises and benefits that will likely you know, come as a result of, of its continued development and emergence. And, um, you know, in terms of NFTs, we, we really see them as essentially being kind of merely, not to minimize them, but to kind of, you know, as merely like the first application of content in, in the entire Web3 space. So this is why, you know, while we have FNFTF and, and uh, you know, products like Tavera Match and, and such, we really like to put the emphasis on our focus in building a platform for all types of content and all types of application across the entire Web3 space, in which NFTs are really just the first example of that. When we're talking about like fraudulent things, you know, what's been in the news a lot, and I don't know if you've been following along, are these like huge phishing scams. I'm wondering like, is there a way where you can almost like inspect, like you're doing with NFTs, inspect like a link, put that link in a, in a, in a, in a browser somewhere, right? Where I could do a search and be like, beware, do not open this link. You know, is that kind of where we're headed? Yeah, yeah, it's it's actually it's funny you mentioned that. It's almost like we actually coordinated and planned this. So, where Tavera started was really a solution more akin to what you're describing. So, we started with a a proactive verification, authentication, and provenance solution that essentially associated the the original creator of the work with a permanent embedding in the actual digital asset itself so that regardless of you know whether it was minted on a given chain a given marketplace shared on social media web 2 web 3 does not matter because the, the that provenance was associated with the the asset itself and not one particular blockchain or social media network or or whatever and so we really consider to very assure the solution that I'm describing to, to really kind of be our, our marquee flagship product. As is often the case with startups, what we very quickly realized is like, oh, well, you know, this is all well and good for new content prior to release. But what about the hundreds of millions, if not billions or trillions 
of pieces of content that are already out there. And so Tavera Match was, was essentially developed in recognition of that uh, to be essentially more of a kind of uh, reactive approach as opposed to a proactive one like what we have with Tavera Sure. You know, you, you have a real interesting background kind of leading back. I know you've, you haven't always necessarily been in the NFT space, not that, not that the space is very old anyway, but I'm kind of curious what led you into this space? What led you into, you know, developing Tavera? And what are your thoughts kind of like, what do you, what do you as a guy who's been in technology for a while now for your entire career, really, what do you see about Web3 and what is it that excited you to jump into it? Sure. So, uh, you know, depending on how far back we want to go, because as, as you noted, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's not much distinction in, in, for me personally between, uh, you know, my life and my career. I, I've been a, you know, hardcore, essentially technology enthusiast since I was five or six years old. What does that look like? What does a five, six year old, you know, 10, 11, 12 year old look like when they're in technology? What was that like? Yeah, so I got really lucky. So, you know, neither of my parents are, are especially technical, but my dad was a, uh, a university professor and, and author. And so it turns out that, in, you know, even though he's in the medical field, publishers, uh, you know, of like books, you know, that used to get shipped around, they were pretty early adopters of technology because they, you know, they quickly realized, well, wait a minute, you know, I can remember far back enough to where if he's passing, you know, essentially like a manuscript or drafts around with his editor, it was hundreds of pages in a FedEx box that they were shipping around. And then, you know, they finally realized, oh, well, you know, for $5,000 in 1988 money or whatever, which is a tremendous sum, right? You can, you know, you can essentially run word processing or whatever. And we can, if nothing else, go from FedEx boxes of hundreds of pages to a FedEx envelope with a floppy disk of some kind in it. So already that was just this like tremendous advancement, you know, in his field. Um, so he was at the University of Illinois, which, um, you know, as, as many may know, is, is you know, at Urbana-Champaign, kind of a top five engineering program for computer science and whatever. So they're certainly extremely early adopters of IP. I mean, this is where Mosaic came from. This is where the National Center for Supercomputing Applications is. So they were very, very early adopters in terms of, you know, email, internet, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things. So that, that sort of period between, you know, ship mailing floppies around was very short because almost immediately after that, it turned into, well, attach the document to an email. And then this really blew people's minds, right? And so it was because of that, that, you know, even though my, again, my parents aren't particularly technical, we, we had a computer in the house and we had the internet long before the, you know, the average person. And so I, you know, I essentially started off as, you know, many do, I can remember being, you know, probably even younger than five or six, like maybe four or something. And, you know, asking my dad, like, oh, well, what's the, you know, what's the command to start Choplifter on our Apple IIe or whatever it was, you know, some video game or something. And so it was like, at the time, you know, this is like pre-GUI and everything else. I was already, you know, in, in a little deeper than, than most would be considering as the late 1980s. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I have recollection. Yeah, my parents just having like this, these, um, these games, and they were all black and white. And I don't know, they were just kind of like the car was running like a, a race car game. And it was the car was just going left and right very slowly. <laughs> I remember that I, I didn't get into the technical side as much. I just remember them having a computer. I was like, what, what is this? You kind of made a, a, a career for yourself, right? Uh, with with uh, Linux, no? kind of like 
you know, there you, you may not, I, I know you kind of were in the news, not that you're a big break, you had started a company already, but you kind of gained some spotlight because you discovered this bug that took you hundreds of hours that was like shutting down a bunch of servers. Yep. And that, that was really, you know, kind of like a remarkable kind of uh, demonstration of patience on your part and kind of grit to find out what was causing these servers to shut down. And I kind of liken it to now, and I, and I want you to talk about that, but I kind of liken it to now where you, you know, you're solving a problem, right? You see a problem and you're kind of like doing the detective work to find out what's the root cause of it. But I was wondering if you could talk about that and, and, and then we could jump back into Tavera, you know? Sure. So I, I, I think I might actually be able to make a, you know, draw like a connection of some kind between, you know, the, like my childhood and what was going on there. So, uh, you know, real quickly, uh, then the next kind of big leap was, you know, I was touring the University of Illinois campus. I was kind of like an obnoxious, you know, 10 or 11 year old. And I was just sort of running around all over the place in the, in the, you know, the engineering school. I went into this room and there was, a bunch of, you know, this is like the mid 90s. So these like ponytailed punk rock PhD students working on these, these computers. And I just like lit up, I thought the kind of graphical interface, the command line, whatever they were using was nothing like I'd seen before. And so I just, you know, ran up to one of them. And I was like, how do I get this at my house? This is so cool. Whatever it is that you're doing, like, I want to get into that. How do I do that? And you know, he kind of laughed because what I didn't understand at the time was, you know, this was like a $200,000 Silicon Graphics Unix workstation, and there was no way I was getting one of these at home. But uh, once they got done kind of laughing at me, um, another one of them leans over and he goes, well, what about that? What about that Linux thing? Like the, Linux is like kind of a thing, right? I mean, that's sort of similar to this. And I went, yeah, Linux, great. I can run it at home, whatever it is. Like, and so, you know, they told me, they're like, go down to the university bookstore, get a book. It, it's going to have a CD-ROM in it. Like, go install it on your computer. And sure enough, that day, that's exactly what we did. I begged and pleaded for my dad to, you know, swing by the university bookstore. We got this book with the CD-ROM on it. And then I went home and I completely reformatted the family computer, like deleted all my sister's homework. I, as far as my family was concerned, I just turned like, a three thousand dollar computer in nineteen ninety four money into like a completely useless paperweight, and so out of necessity, you know, I'm thinking, oh man, this is a grounding minimum, right? You know, it's like out of necessity, I'm, I'm thinking like, well, I I need to get this computer functioning again, and now it's got Linux on it. I don't know where Windows went, but it's gone, so it's got Linux on it. I better get proficient in Linux very quickly. <laughs> So, so even at that, like 10, 11 years old, it was really a matter of like necessity or survival almost. <laughs> so I, I, you know, and at the time there was just no way to make any use of these things without being very deeply technical. I mean, you know, Linux at that point was, I think maybe three or four years old and it was rough. It, it was quite the beast to, to wrangle. So that's what really accelerated this sort of like, you know, deep, layer of technology that I like to get into. So, you know, fast forwarding, let's go, uh, you know, a decade or so. So I, um, I ended up creating this, uh, this embedded Linux distribution, which is, you know, essentially like a packaged version of Linux uh, for voice over IP and firewalls and embedded devices. And it kind of did all these different things, which is, you know, sort of starts the, the path of getting deeper and deeper and closer to the hardware and those kinds of things. And, Frankly, I had no idea, you know, what I had on my hands. And sort of next thing I knew, I was, you know, getting invited to, to speak and present at these conferences and, you know, whatever else. 
you know, it was like at those conferences and those events, and you know, we're we're now in like 2004, essentially. I, I ended up meeting what turned out to be my co-founders for Star to Star Communications, and so we launched Star to Star in 2006, and you know, built and built and built, and it's you know probably like a whole nother podcast of just the trials and tribulations and challenges of you know starting a you know a startup from three people to 300 plus wherever we ended up being in, in terms of headcount at least, and um, we'd gotten to some scale and into. I think what I could probably describe as like our third or fourth generation of hardware that, that we were, you know, putting in and installing it at customer sites. And we started getting kind of these reports and rumblings of these tickets that were escalating from our support group. And it was one of these infamous, I don't know, you know, something strange is happening, but like if we literally, turn it off, unplug it and plug it back in, it magically works again for some period of time. <laughs> What's, you know, what I, what I like, what I find interesting about these kinds of things is like, you know, I think we all kind of experience these, you know, this stuff in our daily lives of, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I get in my car, I have no idea how cars work. I get in my car and I hit the button and, you know, it turns on and what, however that works, but like, Oh, the, the LCD screen doesn't light up for some reason. It's like, okay, well, that's weird. So, you know, you turn the car off, you open the door, you wait a little while, you close the door, you turn it back on. And now like the screen works again. And you just sort of chalk that up to one of these. Well, that was weird, but you know, whatever it works again, who cares? And you drive to the grocery store or whatever. Right. And this was very much one of those where could not be reproduced. We could not figure out what was going on. But what we knew was it was happening in this very limited set of conditions or circumstances. But the problem is at scale, and especially given our type of customer and the fact that, you know, we like, we handled 911 calls. I mean, the reality is if, you know, between this bug manifesting itself and some, you know, every one out of 10 million, whatever, and somebody having to unplug this thing and plug it back in, like someone could die if a 911 call doesn't go through. So, and, and you start to look at tens of thousands of these with the greater volume as freak of an occurrence as it is, you know, if it happens like 1% of the time, that's still a very big number in the grand scheme of things. So once it became clear that there was something going on here, I, yeah, I kicked off this project that, you know, that led to the wire story and whatever else to, you know, to really dig in and figure out what is going on here. This is such a strange issue. And long story short, yeah, it, it ended up being a, uh, a bug in, and I'll never forget this because to your point, there's a lot of time spent on this. It was a bug in the Intel 82574L Ethernet controller EEPROM. So um, it was this, you know, and it was one of these things like, you know, any sufficiently advanced technology is indiscernible from magic. And even for, you know, like in, in my lifetime, I, you know, I'd been very deep in various layers of the stack. And so I knew that, you know, Ethernet controllers, kernel, okay, physical, you know, like physical layer working on up. I knew that there was an EEPROM there, but I didn't really kind of understand what it did because it never mattered. It always worked, except for now it's not. And there's something going on here. And so long story short, what, this is already a long story, but anyway, to try to wrap it up, um, 
it, you know, it ended up being a like a very, very, very specific Ethernet packet configuration with like just the right byte at just the right location that triggered this bug in the EEPROM and shut the controller down. So that's why only when you pulled the power out did it fully reset and it would reinitialize itself properly. But it was just a matter of time until in millions and millions and millions of packets until another packet came along with that like one in you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions, whatever it was, that, you know, tiny infinitesimal chance that you'd have that specific value at that specific offset or byte range. And so chased it down, isolated that, identified kind of the issue, and then developed a patch to the to the Intel EEPROM to, uh, to fix it. So that's, uh, that's that story. That's what happened there. <laughs> when you describe it, it's obvious, like how much time uh, and how much like how much patience you had to have <laughs> to to figure that out, and I, I just found that detective work so curious, and it's out of my realm. Like I have no idea exactly. Like you described it very well, but you know, c- to kind of see it is, is to me remarkable when you solve something like that. You mentioned that the company grew to three hundred people. You know, you had three hundred people working for you. Obviously, you had a, a great deal of success. I, I don't know if you guys uh, you know sold the company or you know or sold your share of the company. But why, why did you decide to move on? What was the, uh, the impetus for that? Sure. So, um, so, the, so the, the entire company was, uh, was acquired last year. Uh, you know, the transaction closed April 1st for roughly $400 million, something, something kind of in that range. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you. So the interesting thing was, um, and you know, even kind of the headcount, right? And not, not to wax philosophical too much, but you know, looking back, I, I kind of I distinctly remember these like moments in a startup where it was like originally, you know, your first like ten people, you know who they are, you know everything about them, you've met their kids, you've met their wives, like you, you know, you're you're like in the trenches all day, every day. You're basically eating three meals you know, a day together. And you can get everybody in the same room and you could go, okay, we're doing this, we're doing this, whatever. And you know, it's just like a huddle essentially on a field, right? And then you get to 20. Eh, you can't really do that anymore. And you know, and then you start getting into like 50. And now it's borderline. Well, I'm not even really sure who some of these people are or what they do, right? And it's not, and it's not a matter of you know of necessarily being like indifferent. It just, it just kind of gets to a point where you sort of really can't keep track. And then you know you get to like 100, 200, you know, whatever. And then it's like you get surprised when you pass one of the original ten in a hallway somewhere. Like, oh, hey, Sean, how's it going? You know, I haven't seen you in a while. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I don't know. I just I, I you know as I'm as I'm back at Tavera, kind of you know starting from one, two, three, a handful again. I just I always like to kind of think of these you know think of these journeys, and so kind of in line with with that that headcount growing, you know, realized essentially and probably like the, you know, almost sort of 10 years in like the 2015, 2016 timeline, you know, essentially it was like, oh, well, you know, this is not absolutely everything technical comes down to me anymore. This is, you know, this is not a 16, 18 hour a day, every day job anymore, essentially. I actually have some time to, to, you know, look into other things and maybe get back to, you know, just like I did when I was a little kid just sort of like, what's neat? What's interesting? Let's, you know, let's play with some stuff. 
And, you know, like a lot of, you know, just kind of nerdy people, I've been following, you know, Bitcoin, blockchain, what have you, since the very beginning, 09, 10, et cetera. But I was just like, I was in it. You know, I was doing things like tracing down Intel Ethernet controller bugs for hundreds of hours at a time. Doesn't leave much time or energy for, you know, going deep into blockchain or whatever else you think is cool, right? It's like, oh, this is, uh, you know, like I was saying, it's like, you know, if I get, if I, you know, if I get a, if I get a story of a 911 call not going through, I mean, I'm going to be devastated, right? If nothing else. So anyway, we, we'd matured beyond that level of like daily intense involvement for me personally by about the, you know, 2016-ish timeframe. And so I thought, all right, this is a great opportunity to just to really get into this blockchain thing that I've been so fascinated with for all of these years. As you, you know, could likely gather or, you know, anyone watching or listening could, could gather like, you know, for me, the guy that was, you know, in the weeds of a Ethernet controller or whatever, I like to sort of, you know, look at things in layers and, and understand the stack at least to, to, you know, to some level. And so for, you know, getting into blockchain, what that meant to me was, oh, well, of course, I'm going to go out and get my hands on 200 GPUs and I'm going to start mining, you know, Ethereum or Zcash or what, you know, kind of whatever it was. And so my first foray into blockchain is ended up going live like early 2017. And that was this like sort of mid-sized, uh, you know, cryptocurrency mining operation of sorts that then led to running my own blockchain nodes and writing smart contracts and doing all of those kinds of things. So, you know, with the sale of, of Star to Star last year, I had known for years that whatever I did next would be something blockchain related. And, you know, once, once the, you know, once the company sold and I was essentially, you know, completely free and clear to really start from the beginning and go all in on something else. That was uh, that was the birth of Tavera. Let me ask you, I mean, and I know this is kind of like a, maybe it's a silly question. Is there anybody in tech, right, prior to say 2010, 2009, that isn't somehow see the, you know, see blockchain or see the promise in blockchain? Uh, you know, I feel like it's almost like the natural progression, right? For everybody that saw the, the promise of, you know, of the internet and kind of, a, you know, this open, you know, open model of connecting the world, right? I mean, it's almost like the natural progression, right? It almost seems like this blockchain is just the next phase of tech and, and there's really nobody saying, no, 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 this is not the way, right? I mean, it's kind of so obvious. Or is that just me? You know, so this is something that I've kind of been fascinated with. So, you know, with getting really deep in this technology also, of course, came like, you know, getting really deep in, you know, like various online communities and corners of the internet and, you know, whatever, uh, whatever it may be. And it's actually been really interesting as best as I can tell. And I, you know, I'm not some like sociologist or psychologist or whatever, but there, there seems to be sort of like a, a, an interesting distribution of like, if I were to kind of put it, you know, put it into like three buckets, generally you have the Bitcoin maxis they're, they're kind of typically described as right, where it's just like, no matter what happens, this is good for Bitcoin. This is good for blockchain. Blockchain is going to take over the entire universe. And, you know, within six months, everything is going to be somewhat chain related and Web3 is just going to completely take over. And if like if 
if you don't get that and you're not on board with me, like you're out of touch and you're irrelevant. So, you know, you have the spectrum, like that's one extreme. Then you have people that are probably like me. They're sort of a little closer to the middle that have been around a little bit longer where like, I'm not such a cranky old man that I just like shut down any new idea, but I've also seen multiple comings and goings of like the next big thing and successes and failures in a, in a, you know, over the span of 30 years or, you know, however long it's been. So I'm sort of in this weird middle place where I look at this and I go, well, I've, you know, I've gotten as deep into this technology as, almost anybody. And I've been at it for five years. Clearly, I believe in this. And I think it's a very interesting technology. I think it has all kinds of fantastic real world use cases and and applications that are, you know, like to your point, like, not to draw a direct comparison, but the kinds of shifts that I saw in the 90s with, you know, it went from I would be at my dad's university, and they're the only people that knew anything about the internet to like, the cool kids in middle school were on the internet, you know, watching that was like, Oh, okay, this is really interesting. You know, there's definitely something here. Right. And so I think we're, we're sort of in that stage of, you know, of blockchain now where it's still sort of kind of trying to find its rightful place. And we'll, we'll sort of see what shakes out, you know, in terms of, um, you know, kind of what makes sense because it's very rare, virtually impossible that, there's like a, you know, just sort of a silver bullet magical technology that just kind of solves all of the world's problems. It, it, it doesn't exist. It never has and it never will. And, you know, that's where I look at, you know, some of these maximalists and I'm like, you know, yes, it's, of course, it's very promising, but I don't know about some of that, you know, but of course, I don't have a crystal ball. You know, I, I, I don't I don't know. I'm just, you know, basing it off of like, you know, my experience and my opinion. But then you also have on the other extreme side of the spectrum, you have people who are just absolutely convinced that every single, you know, the technology sucks. It doesn't work. It never will work. No matter how much time or money gets poured into it, it does not matter. It's fundamentally broken. And oh, by the way, anything based on a cryptocurrency or a token is a complete Ponzi scheme. And you're all a bunch of criminals. And by the way, you're, you know, proof of work, you're destroying the planet while you're at it. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. I see this every single day. And, you know, there are, as best as I can tell, very few people in my camp who are able to like, you know, I've got bias just like anybody else does. Right. But I feel like I'm, I'm fairly rationally able to sort of like objectively view this, look at data, you know, analyze the data, adoption numbers, rates, whatever, like one technology versus the other, whatever it is. And, you know, I'm probably in the extreme minority of being able to, as best as I can tell, of having kind of a, you know, relatively emotionless, fact-based observation and assessment of kind of the current state of things. And then the two sides, either side of me, it's essentially religious. It gets into that level of fervor where if you see some of this dialogue online, it is just opposite wings, people screaming at each other of, you know, the, as a level of discourse for like, you know, you're a bunch of fraudsters and scammers and criminals. And then it's a, you know, you're dinosaurs and you're out of touch and you don't get it. Ha 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 ha. 
So they're they're really it's been, it's been really interesting to sort of watch this, even in the time that I've been in very very deep over the past five years or so. That as best as I can understand it, that you know that generally seems to be the landscape. Very well put. It's still this discourse, right? And you don't necessarily want there to be a winner or a loser. You know, you want there to kind of be some sort of middle ground, you know, as with anything. And I guess, um, you know, to kind of finish up my soapbox rant there, it's essentially like, well, why can't we acknowledge that there isn't a hammer for every nail? There isn't a silver bullet. I mean, just like today, it's like, hey, you've got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp, TikTok, and there are people that are, you know, more or less kind of really ingrained or committed to one of them, but they all serve slightly different purposes for slightly different needs for slightly different groups of users. And then you've also got people using them across the board for their, their slightly different use cases, right? And, you know, you've got, to be fair, you know, sort of like approximately half the world thinks Android is a better mobile platform. And the other half of the world thinks that iOS is a better mo- mobile platform. And it's like, hey, you know, if one works better for you for whatever reason, absolutely. Like go with that, go with the best tool for the job. And so I think that's kind of the problem that, you know, is sort of defining these two camps where it's like you have one camp that's convinced it is the best tool for every and any job. And then you have the other, you know, the other camp convinced that it's completely useless and it's not the right tool for anything. Yeah, and, and and that it just that there's no, um, I guess stuck with the status quo, right? Yeah. Why change it if it, if it ain't broke? But uh, but the thing is, it's kind of broke in some you know in a lot of ways. We could talk, but that's like uh, you know, get into economics and finance and things like that. With so Vera, and we talked about this earlier today, and I, I kind of want to get into um the the fight NFT fraud. You know, you had a, a release a couple of weeks ago, and my big question I mean, is a simple question: Why start there, right? Why and and I want to get into the, the the program and how it works a little bit, you know. Um, but what did you see? What did you see with in talking to platforms or other you know developers or creators about that problem with with NFTs and and the the fraud around that space? So going back to the you know the real original genesis of of, of Tavera, you know, sort of like mid last year, you know, I've been following you know, again, kind of from like a deep tech standpoint all these different emerging standards and whatever else. And 2021, for kind of lack of a better term, certainly in the cryptocurrency community, the blockchain community, could certainly be summed up as the year of the NFT. It's it's where, you know, NFTs really exploded on the scene. And, you know, I I looked at this and, and having, you know, a deep understanding of how this technology fundamentally works, I knew this entire time, hey, you know, an NFT does not communicate the kind of authenticity, verification, provenance that people think it does. There, there are some pretty significant, you know, fundamental limitations that may be blockchain based or storage based or, or whatever it is. And it's looking like, you know, this is like kind of starting to, to go somewhere. So I'm going to essentially place a bet that Sooner or later, people are going to realize that there are some bad actors and opportunists that have identified the same holes that I have, and they're going to take advantage of them and they're going to exploit them. I'm going to essentially put my time and energy and and whatever else in essentially hoping that I meet them at some point here in the future. So that's where sort of this like the, you know, the the cross chain additional layers of verification and provenance to, to plug those holes uh, came from in terms of Tavera Shore. 
And then Tavera Match was again this is like this recognition of okay, well, we already have you know hundreds of millions of pieces of content or you know whatever it is. What are we going to do about that? And you know what we discovered, whether it was talking to potential investors or customers or creators or consumers or collectors, even though certainly this year, awareness of some level of NFT fraud or forgery, whatever it may be, has been increasing. Kind of like my story with with the car, most people don't understand how these things work and they shouldn't. Like, who cares? You know, I don't understand how a lot of things work. But, you know, it it was, you know, it's because of kind of some of those, um, you know, those fundamental, fundamental misunderstandings that this NFT fraud issue has persisted. So uh, we launched FNFTF to really be able to go, um, you know, essentially to end users, however you'd like to characterize them, whether they be the kind of content creator side of a, of a given marketplace or a platform, or the consumer or collector side of a given marketplace or, or platform. And if nothing else, make it available as, a, as an educational tool. I mean, there's, there's a reason why when you go to fnftf.io and you click the most prominent button, which is show me a random ape, what goes on there is literally like there's a random number generator that takes one of the 10,000 apes and just does a search. Like I, I, I haven't manually searched them. I haven't manually reviewed all the results. But what I do know is that, you know, apes are so prominent clearly that you basically cannot get a random search of an ape without having like at least a half a dozen incidents of fraud or forgery. And in many cases, it's a multiple of that. I mean, like, you know, there are some that we've observed that are 25, 30, 40, 50, you know, either copies of an ape, an invalid derivative, you know, a non-authorized derivative, whatever, you know, whatever it may be. So that was, you know, that's kind of really the background and the genesis on the on the launch of FNFTF and and providing, you know, FNFTF that's that's powered by Tavera Match to the public at large to, of course, demonstrate our capabilities and, and what we have from a technology standpoint, but also to bring attention to some of these issues that we've long identified and, and also just the, the scope and the scale of, of the problem at hand that, you know, we've, we've seen in, in many cases that, you know, there's something like 30 to 40% of all of the NFTs that we have indexed are unoriginal, are, are fraud or, or forgery. And that's just an incredible number. That is an incredible number. And I'm thinking, you know, I spoke to Cameron Hijazi uh, from Scent, and um, he brought up the uh, the time when, you know, he had his, you know, just a general marketplace. And, you know, and people were trying to sell off, you know, rip off apes there. And it became so bad. He said, you know, he came out and said it was like 80, 85% of the NFTs there were were fraudulent. We talked about bringing, bringing that marketplace back up. He talked about it, bringing it back up. I asked him questions about it. And he says he wants to do it, but with these uh, guardrails, right? where either they can do something on the front end before the NFTs even get out into the marketplace, or at the very least where, like you mentioned before, consumers can uh, do the check you know, for themselves. Are you aware kind of like what Cameron went through a little bit? Um, and you know, is that kind of what, in a small way, FNFTF can do you know, for a platform like Scent, where they can help the company or the consumers? Absolutely. So, you know, first I, you know, we've been working on, uh, you know, working at this for some time and I had not met Cameron previously. And I, you know, I caught the, some of the media attention 
that uh, that you know Cameron and, and the rest of the team at Scent and Scent had had received. And I immediately reached out to him and I said, "Hey, first and foremost, if nothing else, I am in deep awe and respect and commend you for what had to be an extremely difficult decision to essentially put your you know put your business, your company, and your baby on pause to do the right thing." To make that decision to say, hey, you know what? We're seeing a lot of incidents of fraud and forgery. And until we can somehow get our hands around this, like we are not going to participate in this. This is not what we're about. And, and you know, that's when they they suspended listing and selling on, on scent. Um, and you know, it, it also it also led to, you know, to a broader conversation, of course, of you know, exactly to your point of what we're working on here um, with Tavera Match and, and FNFTF is to, throughout multiple workflows and different you know integrations and interactions, I you know everything from to you know go through an existing catalog to identify any potential fraud or forgery that you already have and take some action against it to. Yep, let's put this thing up at the front. And before we allow content to be, you know, to be listed or added to the marketplace, let's run it past Tavera Match and let's see what Tavera Match has to say about this. So kind of, you know, one of the analogies I make is, unfortunately, you know, most NFT marketplaces at this point in time are essentially, you know, a building with a gigantic sign out front, a neon billboard that says like, fraud and forgery bad actors come on in right and, and and so what we're you know what we're saying here is even in the early stages of tavera match it's like okay first things first turn that sign off close the front door and put a couple of deadbolts on it you know it's like kind of the you know the kind of the analogy that i like to make in in, in, a, in a you know a, i think a good one for the approach that we're taking and that uh, practically speaking what happens here with tavera matches in a in a a hypothetical situation with a with a marketplace, you could essentially say, okay, you create your account, whether we do know your customer or not, doesn't really matter. You create your account. And when you submit content to our marketplace to list it in the back end, you know, it's invisible to, to the creator or the uploader, we're going to take that actual media and we're going to send it over to Tavera Match. And Tavera Match is essentially going to give us something maybe akin to, you know, a credit score, you know, how kind of however you'd like to, you'd like to think about it. And we can tell them any number of things from, hey, you know what, this is a 100% copy of an ape that was minted a year ago. And, you know, from there to, hey, you know what, 45% of the pixels of this image match this. And, maybe you want to reject that or moderate it or do something, you know? So there's this kind of like stoplight approach of hundred percent matches. I, I think anybody would, would look at that and say, yeah, that probably doesn't belong in a marketplace. Right. And then there's kind of a yellow or, or, or gray, depending on how you want to look at it area where, hmm, okay, maybe it's a little subjective. We need to, we need to kind of learn uh, how we want to look at these results and decide what we want to do. And then there's, you know, there's, there's essentially like the, you know, the green of ideally, um, you know, if we take a step back and, and we look at what NFTs are really supposed to represent, it's uniqueness and scarcity. They're the entire value of one of 10,000 board apes 
is is completely tied to and associated with there might be 10,000 variations of 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 my ape but my ape is my ape it's completely original i can look at it and i can say that's mine and anybody else can look at it and say yes that is yours or you know you can look at one of the other 9999 and know like that's something else and so ideally for you know for good actors and original content creators in this marketplace use case Tavera Match shouldn't know anything about it. We should come back and say, we've never seen anything like this before. We have no results because that represents an original work that has not been seen by the blockchain before. And that is what an NFT is supposed to be. I think that the, the NFT piece is, is huge, really. And I know it's a small piece of what Tavera Match is doing. You know, you start kind of starting it off with, with, with the NFTs and you have a much kind of bigger plane, right? So I kind of want to talk about that. What I think of now in terms of like fraud, you know, is like big picture stuff, disinformation, right? Uh, deep fakes, uh, altered photographs, things like that, right? Where people are, you know, they're getting their news from Facebook. They're taking it as, as fact and, and they're creating their opinions. They're kind of having these conversations based off of what they're seeing. And a lot of times what they're seeing is, you know, altered material. Is that kind of where, where you're headed? I mean, that's kind of where my, my brain starts going uh, beyond the NFT stuff. So it, it, it's funny. That's, that was actually the original spark for Tavera. Uh, you know, as I was looking at kind of this, this like, I'm free in, in April, I think it was March 13th of last year. Um, I don't know if you caught this or not. There is a really interesting story of a, um, it was a mom in her mid-50s in uh, actually a small town in Pennsylvania that I, I've been to before. That's kind of an interesting story. But I, I so I caught it. I was like, oh, Doylestown. I've been to Doylestown. What's up with this? Yeah, yeah, Doylestown. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so you know, the story was, just to kind of summarize it, this is a wild story. Uh, it was this, you know, it was, a, it was a mom in her mid-50s who was clearly way too engaged in her teenage daughter's cheerleading career. And she ended up creating rudimentary but deep fake videos nonetheless of uh her daughter's teenage like high school cheerleading rivals engaging in all sorts of bad behavior in, in an attempt to discredit them and get them kicked off the cheerleading squad and improve her daughter's chances of making it on the cheerleading squad did you catch that i i, I have vague recollections that yes it was something where you're like this is too crazy i'm not even you know you read the headline and you're kind of like yeah, yeah it's like what and, and you know and, and and if it weren't for the fact that one of my best friends grew up in Doylestown, I may not have really paid that much you know that that close of attention to it. But I at least send it to him, and I'm like, hey, are, you know, do you see what's going on in Doylestown these days? What's up with that? So, but it was this it was this like really interesting moment of, well, I you know I'm also you know just being so interested in technology. I've been following deepfake technology progression for years as well. But are we approaching a point in time where, you know, not to be, you know, ageist or, or pick on cheerleading moms, but it was like, you know, this person is closer in age to, to my mom, who's not technically sophisticated at all than, than I am. And she's aware of deep fakes and is able to make use of some sort of tool to, to generate something, however rudimentary. Are we approaching a point in time where 
between an advancement in the fundamental technologies, the advancement in compute hardware, Moore's law, leveraging of cloud, blah, 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 all these things, are we approaching a point in time where anyone is going to be able to install an app on their iPhone and generate a completely perfect, indiscernible, deep fake video of anyone doing or saying anything? And I think the answer is yes. On a long enough timeline, like, but we're going to get there eventually. Scary. Yeah. So it's like, we're not even talking about, you know, Russia or nation state actors or North Korea or, you know, the United States and the NSA or whatever. Um, you know, we're at a point where a year ago, a lady from Doylestown <laughs> was making deep fakes. You know, this is not the NSA, right? So, you know, I thought like, uh, you know, and of course I did like another technical deep dive, right? And, um, you know, and realized that, in the kind of in the computer vision machine learning community, it's it's sort of a foregone conclusion that eventually the technology approaches to generating deepfake videos will win. It will get to a point where right now there's kind of an approach where okay, well maybe we'll develop a model and we try to detect them, whatever. Um, but on a long enough timeline, the consensus is essentially that the generation of these things will get so good that they're indistinguishable to the human, you know, to the human eye perception. And they're completely indistinguishable to another computer trying to detect these things. And so I kind of looked at this and I thought, well, this is one of these, again, my kind of middle approach of blockchain is great for some, for, for tons of things. Like, oh, what if we had this like NFT plus plus media authentication and provenance that also created, you know, a validation record of that, whether it's an NFT or not on a blockchain so that whether media you know created by you or you know or whatever is is authenticated with Tavera Assure, it doesn't matter if like Putin or Kim Jong-un or whoever is after you, like it's on this globally distributed database that is 100 percent secure, that is cryptographically authenticated and cannot be changed or modified by anyone. And so it was like from the cheer mom in Doylestown colliding with the, you know, kind of ML stuff that I'd been into with the block, you know, blockchain and whatever else, I thought, okay, you know, in, in working on this at, at Tavera, we can potentially get ahead of and provide a authentication solution to, to counter the emerging threat of deep fakes, while also simultaneously embracing NFTs and blockchain and sort of identifying and plugging these holes that I'd already, you know, identified in current approaches to NFTs more, more broadly and generally. It seems like, you know, and maybe I'm unaware, but it seems like blockchain is really at this point, the best solution for something like that, right? Because of what you had described before. Absolutely. You can't corrupt it. It's distributed and it's a, a you know, a global database essentially. So with that in mind, I mean, with the Vera match, I mean, what I want my listeners to the, the, the listeners to do is definitely check out, you know, fnftf.io. It's a really cool um, site. You know, I, I kind of dragged a couple of my NFTs into the, the JPEG search and, you know, and it comes out and it says a hundred percent match, which I'm like, great. Yay. <laughs> my NFTs that are worth now $10. Um, <laughs> and then I dragged other ones. Like I took a, like some copies where I would drag them off of OpenSea, stick it into my desktop. And I would drag it onto the site, right? And then it comes out and it says like a 94% match or something like that, a pixel match. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, I guess, you know, you don't want the 90, you really want 100%, right? I mean, if it's being verified through the blockchain. 
You know, so it depends. Like, for example, if you take an NFT that's listed on OpenSea from like the gallery or the collection page, just the listing on OpenSea, that's already a thumbnail and they've kind of done some things to it. Like it's been resized or they've kind of recompressed it or whatever. So that's a case where when you take that and you submit it to FNFTF, like, yeah, you, you might get a 94, 95% match, which is interesting because you know, around like 90% is where like the human eye can start to tell the difference. So, you know, one thing I'm very proud of in, in our implementation at, you know, in Tavera Match is that the matching algorithm is, is, is sophisticated enough to be able to tell when an image has been recompressed or has been resized or whatever. And, it, you know, a person doesn't have a, a chance at identifying that something's been done to that. And so what we did on FNFTF where, it, you know, basically at the top of the search results, there's a timeline. And so left to right, there's all of the matches that get returned and the image furthest to the left is the first record, the first match of that specific configuration of pixels, whatever you submitted, that's the first time any of the blockchains we have indexed have seen anything like it. So generally speaking, that is the real one. And so, you know, if you look at like the contract details or, you know, or whatever else, like if that lines up with what you have, then it's essentially a, you know, a 100% lock for like, phew, like you have an original versus, you know, if you look, um, you know, so it's like, say, let's say, you know, the first date that comes back was minted like May 21st of last year or whatever it is. If what you own or what you are looking, you know, what you're, you know, potentially purchasing is, you know, one of the copies from February of this year, well, clearly that's not the original and you are looking at a fraud or a forgery of some type. And I'd also like to point out, I don't know if you saw this, we also have a browser extension that's available in the Chrome web store. And if you install it and add it to Chrome, you can do two-click searches directly from any of the dozen or so marketplaces that, that we support with the browser extension. So it's literally like from fnftf.io, there's, you know, there's a button that takes you to the Chrome Web Store. You install the extension, and seconds later, you can be on OpenSea, Maker's Place, Foundation, Coinbase NFT, any number of other NFT marketplaces. Right-click on an NFT image, click search on fnftf, and the results open immediately. Really cool, really cool. My last question, Christian, and, and kind of leading back to what we we're talking about just before, who are the clients? Like, who are the people or the, the platforms that are looking to use this technology that you're developing, right? In terms of like fighting the deep fakes, you know, are, are we talking about all these social media platforms or is that something that you're still kind of trying to, you know, preach the importance of, you know, or are the companies aware and they realize that they have a problem or are you fighting that that uphill battle? So, um, you know, this, and this is uh, you know not necessarily new in terms of in terms of my you know technology startup career. It's a double edged sword, essentially. If like the good news is you've got this like great solution, this great technology that's broadly applicable. The bad news is you're starting from zero. You're small. You're somewhat resource limited. It, it may apply in all of these different areas, but you have to pick something to focus on, to you know, to better understand your user, their their use case, you know, the customer, what their needs are, uh, the scope of the problem, all of those different things. 
And so um, in our, you know, kind of even go back to some of the earliest questions of like, yes, it's, it's this like massive database that can do these searches and these matches and whatever, it, you know, the mind can just run endlessly on all of the different areas where this technology could apply and be useful. Um, but, you know, luckily the bet, the bet that I made last year of bad actors are going to figure out that NFTs are not kind of what people think they are. And there's going to be a lot of fraud. And even on my most cynical day, I wouldn't have imagined that the fraud would have gotten this bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's unreal. Like Cameron, you know, like Cameron has said time and time again, it's unbelievable how bad it is. So, you know, so I think like, you know, as in terms of a first application of technology, you know, certainly made a good, made a good bet there, you know, in terms of use, like who are these people, you know, who, who would use this? So uh, kind of, you know, moving, moving through um, sort of the pipeline of, of what the NFT ecosystem looks like on one side, you have the creators and, you know, first for, you know, a variety of reasons, you know, they want to know when their stuff gets stolen. They want to know when their work has been ripped off and when people are, you know, stealing from them quite literally, like taking money out of their pocket to, to, you know, move it to theirs. They also want to know, hey, these frauds are out there. I should let my users and my community know, here are the frauds. Here are my originals. You know, do not engage with, the, with these frauds at all, if nothing else, right? Um, so that's kind of a, a very, like, simple, straightforward use case for the creator. And that's another one where, you know, like you, know, like you described on FNFTF.io today, a creator can take any piece of work that they have. And interestingly, whether they've made it an NFT or not, because there's this other fraud issue of bad actors in the NFT space stealing art that's existed for, in some cases, decades from Web2 and making NFTs of them, presenting, you know, passing themselves off as the original artist when the original artist has no idea what an NFT is and has nothing to do with it. So it's like, whether you're that creator or you're a creator that has embraced the, the NFT ecosystem, whatever, you know, you can, you can drop your work into FNFTF.io and we'll, you know, we'll tell you, we'll tell you like where it's ended up, who's stolen it, you know, when, where, all those different things. Um, on, on the, you know, on the other side, you've got, the you as a you know you as a, a a collector nft investor you know however you you'd want to describe it there's a big question i mean frankly to me it's kind of scary borderline terrifying to think as we speak somebody somewhere just heard about nfts and they're going to wander into a marketplace somewhere and they're going to potentially spend tens of thousands of dollars and again, maybe at this point, given what's happened in the NFT space, $100, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, they're, they're going to spend their, you know, their hard-earned money on something where if you look at the math, they've got at best a 50-50 shot of what they're buying, however you feel about NFTs, whatever, none of that matters. The reality is if you buy a forged Picasso that somebody painted in their garage two weeks ago, it's worth nothing, right? If you buy an original Picasso that, you know, like he put his brush to the canvas, it's worth $10 million or whatever. So there's, there are, there are extremely high stakes in this space. 
it just so happens that, you know, reproducing a Picasso on canvas and passing it off as a 100 year old work is significantly more difficult than right click, save as re-upload of an NFT. From the consumer or collector standpoint, and, and I'm, you know, I'm not just saying this to be self-serving, but um, you know, we, we really kind of see this as, you know, even to be dramatic as a, a, com- a complete total existential threat to at least the entire NFT space, if not the Web3 space, because how many stories, how many Twitter threads, how many whatever of I got completely ripped off. I got completely scammed. I bought this fake. It's worth nothing. Or somebody hijacked this from my wallet, or this is a rug pull, whatever it was, all these scams that we've seen. How many of those stories is it going to take before the rest of the 98% of the population that, that, you know, we're, we're trying to bring into the fold in the, in the blockchain, cryptocurrency and web three space, how many of those stories, you know, are going to happen before the average person just writes this thing off as being a cesspool of fraud and criminality. So it, we, we think that the, you know, that from a, from an individual level to, to the entire ecosystem, the stakes are extremely high on providing solutions and tools to, to address a lot of the, you know, the fraud and frankly, criminality that, that goes on in the space every day. Yeah. And I think it speaks to a broader issue about security regulation even the laws, right, are kind of murky around about around NFTs and cryptocurrency. So if there's no laws, there's no regulations, really, right? The industry has to kind of look within and, and come up with some solutions. And I, you know, that's kind of, you know, that's definitely what you're doing, you know, Christian. So like, uh, you know, it's it's a good uh, step forward because you're you're right. I, and I I I wrote about that a couple weeks ago in the news. Like, how much more does this need to happen before? Not only does do people not come in, but then the people that are in the space have enough and they're, they're fed up and they leave, you know? Oh, they, yeah. It's, you know, imagine if in 1995, your, you know, your first experience with e-commerce was you put your credit card number into a website, you got completely ripped off, like nothing ever showed up. And then, oh, by the way, they like ran up a bunch of charges on it. You would swear it off and say, yep, the internet's all a scam. It's just a bunch of, it's a, it's a bunch of thieves and robbers and bandits and criminals. And you'd never come back, right? Or at least a substantial portion of people would never come back. That's where I see this as like one way or another, um, you know, frankly, I, you know, so engaged in, in, in this space and in, am such a, a, you know, a long-term believer. It's like, Hey, solutions like Tavera, whatever else. I mean, the reality is in this ecosystem from user adoption and all these other factors, it's still really in its infancy. And if we don't, if we don't all collectively work together to essentially clean house and, and take care of some of these issues, everything that we're doing and everything that we're working on will continue to languish in relative obscurity because we weren't able to address these problems and these issues. Christian, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this was a, a great conversation, man. Everything from, from learning about you as a kid <laughs> You know, to, to, to becoming the, the detective with Linux and, and, you know, just how you grew up around the technology. Really, really interesting stuff, man. And, uh, and now talking about what you're up to now. So congratulations on, you know, the great success. Thank you. And now best of luck with your next, you know, next uh, really uh, mission, I guess I could call it. Where can people uh, keep track? You know, where can people keep up with you? You know, are you mostly on Twitter, LinkedIn? 
Yep. So, uh, so Tavera is on Twitter at, at Tavera Inc. I'm uh, at Keel Chirps. I like to have verbs for, for my, you know, my various social media platforms. And then of course, uh, there's FNFTF.io and Tavera.com where you can, you can sign up for our wait list to basically be, you know, be apprised of, of any new or interesting developments that, that we have going on here at Tavera. Awesome. Christian, thanks so much. Look forward to, you know, the developments and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Yeah, sounds good. Big thanks to Christian for coming on the podcast and for talking about the elephant in the room, the rampant amount of fraud that currently pollutes the NFT space. I really hope that Tavera plays a key role in helping secure digital content and keeping all the fraudsters away. As always, thank you for spending part of your day with us. If you enjoyed today's episode, let others know about it or leave a review or a comment. Until the next time, take care.